Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is John Rossman. John's a former Amazon executive where he launched and scaled the marketplace business, which now accounts for more than 50% of all units sold at Amazon.com. He also led the enterprise services business with responsibilities for Target.com, NBA.com, Toys R Us, and other top brands. He now heads Rossman Partners, a niche business advisory firm that works with business leaders who want to thrive in the digital era. John lives in San Clemente, California, and is here to talk about his book, Think Like Amazon, 50 and a half ideas to become a digital leader. Welcome, John. Bill, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Say, when you were growing up, Who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Well, um, when I was growing up, so I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, I was lucky enough to get to go to Jesuit high school. And um, and at that point, it was an all-male high school. And I had a math teacher, um, Mrs. Satterberg, who uh, was such a great teacher. She, she not only taught us math, but she just expected us to to be appropriate, you know, young men and everything. And I really appreciated her sense of humor and how she just instilled in me and, and a number of my, my friends there, just how exciting math was that it wasn't this um, arcane abstract, but it's really a language to describe ideas by and to understand things better by. And so um, that was growing up, getting to go to that high school, was really a pivotal uh, experience for me. And in particular, her class was great. Do you remember if that influenced your decision of where to go to college or what courses to study when you went there? Well, I didn't get have a lot of opportunity or uh, options as to where I was going to go to college, but it definitely it gave me confidence that I could tackle a rigorous academic domain like engineering and everything. So it really built my love for mathematics. John, you talk a lot about the responsibilities of a digital leader. What are the job responsibilities in a digital leader today? And what does it mean to, quote unquote, compete differently? Well, that's a, that's a big question. And, and I give a lot of answers to that, which is why there's 50 and a half ideas <laughs> uh, in the book. But I think sum it up in some ways, which is not only do we need to be as an organization and as a leader great at our operational domains, but you actually have to become great at creating change, right? Envisioning change and making it happen and delivering business value to it. And so, whereas I think in the past, um, just being able to operate within your current um, assumption base and your current domains was really what being a good manager and good leader about. Now it's the ability to envision the future and innovate and make that future happen is the additional capabilities that the digital era brings upon us. And so that is really the essence of the entire book, which is, so what are all of the things that Amazon brings to us that we can learn from as leaders and apply into our business to help us be able to be both a great operator as well as an innovator. 
And that is a big ask. And the book is wonderfully laid out so that you can dive into something that seems to be either a trouble area or an opportunity that you want to exploit. What's been your experience with some of the consulting clients that you work with that they, how they use the book in order to learn about creating change and maybe developing some of the skills that were lacking when they first started in their work? Yeah. So, you know, my experience is, is that first of all, it really starts with being honest that, hey, we, we need to, we can't rest on our laurels and we need to actually invest more and innovate more in our future. And so um, idea number three, which is called move forward to get back to day one, change the culture of status quo, is sometimes the starting point for that. And it really is about being honest about, you know, are we kind of a day one company, one that's investing in the future, um, eagerly creating change, we're open to new ideas, or are we a day two company, which is really about optimizing for current period, current profitability, and we're more or less interested in maintaining the status quo. And, you know, the entire essence of, of the book and kind of where I, I ended up is we all think we want the organization to change. We all want digital transformation. But what we have to realize as, as leaders is we have to be willing to change some of our own personal habits, add some new skills, allocate our time a little differently. And so you really need to ask yourself, what are you willing to do differently in order to make that? And so the thing I've learned with my clients is, we think about these engagements as an organizational strategy or a digital strategy, but really a lot of my work and my impact is working with individual leaders and like, what are you willing to do differently? So for an example, I, I had a, uh, a CIO client of mine, Dan, at a large retailer and Really, it was the one-on-one -on -one weekly conversations that Dan and I would have, a lot of which we spent very tactically on what are we going to measure differently so that we, to help drive us to new insights. And so we spent a lot of time on, on metrics and instrumentation and how to deeply measure. And then you can ask different questions. It was really about Dan's transformation that um, helped set the stage for bigger organizational changes. I'm sure you would agree with the fact that when leaders are embracing the tools and have gotten some results with them first, before they look to roll them out or expect others to do, they come about it from a much more credible place. Isn't that your experience? That's part of the essence of it, but so, but it's amazing how many are either, I don't know whether they're reluctant to do that, scared to do that, or they don't get that point, which is you have to set the tone from the top. You have to not, not just kind of go along with it, but actually like be the biggest advocate and the biggest adoptee of it in order to make true lasting cultural and management change. That's a great point. I hope that all the business leaders out there listening to this underscore that, saying that it requires your own courage to step forward and say, not only do I want my people to change, I've got to be willing to go first. I've got to be willing to be vulnerable. I've got to be willing to look a little foolish, maybe learning new skills and not having complete mastery over them and learning about new technologies like Internet of Things, which none of us, when we started our working careers, were, had a part of our experience. Is, is that kind of the idea of what you want to convey, John? That's exactly it. So when you were at Amazon, what did they do in the culture 
to actually bake that into the DNA so that this idea of being a digital leader was part of everyone's thinking. I was at Amazon from early 2002 through late 2005, and it was a really formative time for Amazon because we were understanding like, oh, we aren't just an e-commerce retailer. We're actually a platform company. A platform company builds tools and capabilities that you not only use, but you let others use. And so we were hammering out these concepts of what being a platform company is about. We were hammering out our leadership principles. So the Amazon leadership principles weren't codified at that point. That happened sometime after that. And so what we learned was this entire system, like there's not one thing, it depends on the circumstances and it depends on what the question problem is in front of you. So which type of tool or strategy or leadership is appropriate. But I think maybe the underlying concept was, was we took the time to not only like, okay, what's the problem? How do we resolve it? How do we think about this situation? But we would always be testing ourselves. Well, why are we approaching it that way? How would that technique or that leadership principle work in other circumstances? And taking the time to really think about why you're thinking about something. So kind of that meta process, that recursive process of slowing down and like, you know, am I really thinking about this in the right way? That was the habit that we put into place. And I think one of the secrets of Amazon is although the business has changed a thousand times since, since I was there, how they go about their work is exactly the same. I'm always testing these ideas with, with my contacts at Amazon and how they use it is exactly the same way. So I get, I get probably my number one customer base for Think Like Amazon is current Amazon employees who use this as a manual for how they go about their own business. And I think that's a really important point because it validates that you've found timeless principles when it's something you've extracted and it applies both to working day people at Amazon as well as people who are looking to bring this digital thinking into their own organizations and use it. These are timeless principles. The thing I always like to say is like, you know, I, I didn't invent all these principles. I didn't invent all these tactics or strategies. I just paid attention in class. And I've had the opportunity since I left Amazon to put these into play and to appropriately insert them into my client work to see impact take place. And so I, I have become a master at breaking them down and then with wisdom, applying the right tool, the right technique for the right time. And one of the things we know is that when you go through a transformational experience like that, it requires us to change ourselves. Do you remember a time, John, when you were confronted with one of these principles and perhaps intellectually you knew that a change would have been good, yet you were just feeling all of this resistance for one reason or another to actually saying yes or going along or you were afraid of losing face? Do you remember an example like that that you could share with us about how you were changed by the process of the Amazon leadership principles? Yeah, a couple of things I, I would share there. So I have a business partner, Steve. I was a partner with Steve before I was at Amazon. We were partners at Arthur Anderson Business Consulting together. And then after I left Amazon, Steve and I were partners at a firm called Alvarez and Marcel. And the thing that Steve told me, he goes, after Amazon, John, the thing you are always doing is clarifying and simplifying communication uh, between you know between people between groups, and it's your ability to always be clarifying and simplifying. 
it's just such a, a value added and consistent trait. And, and you obviously pick that up at Amazon. So that's, that's one piece of feedback I had from somebody who knows me extremely well, both before and after Amazon. And the other thing that goes along with that was, you know, I'm an engineer uh, by education. What I learned at Amazon, one of the key things I learned at Amazon was slowing down and fully writing out ideas completely in order to proceed with them. And that works against my very nature of kind of speed and efficiency, but you have to know when to slow down and write out ideas and completeness. And, you know, it's gotten to me to be such an ingrained habit now that even if I don't share the narrative or the document with somebody, I always write out my thoughts. And, and that's kind of part of how I fell into, into writing these books was I just like saw the, the power and the forcing function of writing things out completely to help me think through things better. Given the fact that you studied not just engineering, but industrial engineering, which is about efficiency of operations, which is about making things work faster, easier, more cost-effectively, that really did go against the grain of what you spent four years learning about in school, didn't it? Well, yeah, but again, it's just like the right, the right approach at the right time, right? There there's, are certainly times where fast decision-making, speed, sense of urgency is exactly the appropriate piece. And, and really kind of that, you know, if you think about a company, like half of it is about operational excellence, but being digital is about both being operationally excellent as well as being able to envision and implement the future. And so it's more on that creative part, that innovation part, where then having a different mindset, sometimes a slightly different set of tools to approach it helps bring that. And that's, you know, back to your first question, which is like, well, what's it mean to be a digital leader? Being a digital leader is both being a great world-class operator and the ability to envision and implement the future in always in big ways. And it's that complementary skill set. But you literally, for me at least, I literally have to recognize, well, which modality am I trying to operate in? And I have to put myself in the right circumstances to operate differently. Well put. If you were talking to a manager coming to work for you, maybe at Amazon, maybe at one of the, the consulting um, operations that you've worked in um, since then, how do you help people who are managers or even a client, how do you help managers and leaders zero in on their purpose so quickly? It's one of the things that I was struck with while I was reading Think Like Amazon is how important it is to always have your purpose in mind and to have people embody that. What is it that you help them consider or think about in order to latch on to that so that it becomes you're always keeping the customer in mind and because you have the, both the outcome you want to create and the customer in mind, it becomes easy to have conversations around achieving those objectives. New people coming into an organization are always so great. They're eager. They want to show that they belong. They want to show that you made a great hire. They want to progress quickly. The thing you have to recognize in that is, is sometimes that can also be kind of their weakness, right? They're running so fast, they don't know what they don't know. So the way to help them out oftentimes is really to make sure that we understand what the mission is, what the objectives are, 
and and continue to practice and and understanding exactly like what is success in this particular project or program or period of time and then breaking it down into well what are the different things we need to achieve that success how are we proceeding on this but so often it's kind of the seeing the trees without recognizing the forest syndrome which is we forget what the mission is or we don't truly understand what the mission is and who all the stakeholders are and so oftentimes it's just taking the time to help slow them down and reminding ourselves of what the mission is everybody that we need to bring along for the journey and not let their sense of urgency and eagerness be their own worst enemy. It's um, something that you described in your book about having an obsession with the customer is paramount in order to operationalize and innovate. And you've got to establish metrics and make small bets. What are a few things that people starting out do wrong in this area often with good intentions, yet it still leads to distorting the behavior results you're actually seeking. And then what would you say are reminders that help people be more successful in these areas? It can sometimes take time to truly understand who your customer is. So you have to be willing to put in the hard work and to be curious to truly understand your customer. And so sometimes you have to be a customer. Sometimes you have to go talk to customers. Sometimes you have to go out in the field and work with the organizations or people who are directly serving your customers. And so I think that, again, people being eager to get to solutions, they skip over some of the the hard work that you have to do in order to get insights. And it's that curious nature that really helps create our obsession and our insight. So that's that's one part of it. Relative to putting metrics in place, in this electronics firm uh, in Dallas, I was working with a program leader by the name of Ron. And the types of metrics that we were seeking of, their clients were oftentimes very frustrated with them relative to the number of contract iterations or the on-time equipment delivery. So the types of metrics we put in place were metrics that measured how from the time a sales proposal was won to the time when a contract was signed, not only how long would it take, but how many different iterations it would take. And that just helped make us aware of how much pain we were putting our clients through relative to what, and at the end of the day, ended up to be pretty typical boilerplate language. And the other types of metrics we put in place was first-time perfect delivery metrics, implementation duration metrics, first-month quality metrics, so that we were really measuring in a deep and real sense the type of setup experience that clients were having with their Since they started from a point where there was such a lack of appreciation for metrics, I wonder what happened next. Once we had our first draft, their perspective was, well, we're done with our metrics. And it, and it was like, no, 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 no. You're never done in building your metrics. We're going to now have, we have a baseline for those metrics. And we're going to get together and on a weekly basis, review those metrics and understand the root cause that's behind them. But we're also always going to be asking, how could we improve those metrics? How could we add more monitoring? How did, how did this negative thing happen but not show up? on our metrics, that means our metrics aren't done. And so it's that mindset of your metrics are never done. And your metrics are truly what connects the customer experience and operations into your insights. And so you always need to be willing to question, what are my metrics? And to be persistently using those over time. 
And again, that's so clear how that comes back to truly understanding your customer's experience, because none of those things were probably measured before, nor do people think to track it. And once you have metrics to track, then you have a process that you can refine, improve, and optimize. It so oftentimes starts with just awareness, right? Because we had those metrics, then the rest of the team and and the CFO of the organization then had awareness as to like, oh, our legal team is not appropriately supporting this business. Oh, we are not getting the type of initial product quality and configuration that we need to help um, have a great setup experience for our customers. A- awareness is 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 really where the start comes, but that comes from having facts and deeply understanding your customer. It's amazing how quickly things can change once numbers and measures and ratios start showing up on the dashboard, huh? And you can talk to them in detailed and convincing ways, right? And that's just, you know, it's the number one way to get past insecurity and bureaucracy and people trying to, to hide the truth. The, the truth is in the numbers, typically. John, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? I would love to have them. When you start out each day, what are some key questions you ask yourself to get ready for daily success? Bill, I'm a very planful person, pretty deliberate. And so the thing I do before I go to bed each night is I have a set of kind of key objectives for the next day. And it really is like, what's the, I, I know my overall activities, but what's the one or two thing, two things that I need to really get done over the day to make it a success? And really, I create kind of annual goals, I create quarterly goals, and then every day I'm trying to push those things forward. So when you really have some big goals and big objectives to to have happen, you really have to think about and be mindful of what's the everyday progress I'm going to make against those objectives. What's the easiest or least expensive change you've made in your personal or professional life in the last six months that's had the biggest payoff? So Bill, I've had impingement in my shoulders and I really didn't think that I could change that, right? It's like, oh, I'm just getting old. I'm in my fifties. But I went to a physical therapist and I did the work and it actually has made such a difference to me. But it just is another example of don't be satisfied with the status quo, the current state, if you're willing to put in the work and do the everyday consistent work, you can make incredible change in anything. And so for me, it was just about every day doing a set of stretches and exercises to help loosen up my shoulders. But it just, it just reconnected me with the fact that like you, if you're patient and you're persistent, you can change anything. That's a terrific example um, because it seems so simple, yet it affects you 24-7 to have that additional mobility and that freedom of movement. Yeah, I have, I, I have, I have so many friends who, who are always complaining about you know, different aches and pains and everything. And I was just like, do physical therapy. Like That's, that's my advice for them because it, it, it does work if you do the work. John, Jeff uh, Bezos was famous for not viewing consensus as sacred. And you write about some of these with some great examples in the book. How did managers function so effectively in an environment where disagreement, not consensus, often led to better ideas, better decisions, and better results? I think it's, it's partially about trust and that everybody knew, like, we are not going to settle for the easy or convenient answer. We're going to shoot for deep insights using customer obsession, using data, and we're willing to challenge each other. And we know that it's not 
personal. It's just because it's the, it's the type of struggle that you have to go through to get to a better answer. And so I think that that's where really just leadership and culture set the stage for it's not just expected that we do this, but it really is the way that we approach our work together. And when you can bring a team who can have honest conversations, fact-based conversations, truly seek the truth, then you can operate at a deep, different different level and not always be consensus driven. I love the subtitle of that chapter, which is the risk uh, social cohesion poses to accomplishing hard results. That rings true for anyone who's been involved with change efforts. And it goes to the point you've mentioned uh, a couple times already, where slowing down allows you to have those important conversations and come up with better ideas. When you implement this and share this with people who are running companies and running business units, what is it that helps them understand how to use this effectively and adopt it in practice? A, seeing it in action can really help them. And I've developed a certain kind of boldness, but also technique of slowing things down, saying, hey, I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I'm new here. I don't fully understand this. Explain to me exactly why that happened. And, you know, I was with a, a, a client recently and Jake was trying to gloss over like, you know, why it was acceptable that we had to have this type of cycle time in something. I slowed him down, got him to explain it to me. And then I asked a different type of question, which is, well, what would have to be true for our cycle time on this to be close to zero? Like then all of a sudden Jake's stepped back and was like, well, this is what would have to be true in order for us to get the cycle time close to zero on this. Oh, that's where the real innovation, right? And so oftentimes it's just being willing to stop a conversation, pretend you're the dumbest person in the room, which oftentimes I am, like I don't understand the details enough, but then ask a different question and ask instead of like, well, how do we avoid this issue or how do we improve it by 10%, take it to an extreme. How do we make cycle time zero or quality perfect or, you know, some other type of extreme measure. And then you're going to think about it differently. John, that's a really interesting point. One thing I read about in the book that I was fascinated by was managers and leaders forming SLAs with each other. People actually say, here's the service level agreement that my department makes to you because you're a stakeholder in what we're doing. Can you break down how that's been implemented either at Amazon or one of your client companies? Yeah, absolutely. What most of us think of SLA, service level agreements, is we think of these as these contractual obligations that happen between different enterprises, right? And on one sense, that's true. But on another sense, what we we thought of this as kind of these these everyday SLAs at Amazon. And, I, and I've worked, I have a big retail client um, in Seattle where everybody who runs a service, a business, a capability Basically, the SLA is what are your commitments to the people who, who rely upon your service or your capability? So imagine you're a technology um, leader and you own the promotion service, right? So the promotion service is the service that for any type of customer or order or situation says what promotions are eligible for it, right? It could be used on the website, it could be used in the store, it can be used in the, in the back office functions. And so the types of SLAs that you typically come up with on these types of services are certainly like uptime um, service level agreements that, you know, your service has to be available in order to, to be valuable. So you have uptime. You 
they have some type of quality type of metric, like you know how accurate, how performant is your service. And then oftentimes you have a, a cost type of measure, right? Like what did it cost uh, in order to achieve that? And so when, when we can hold each other accountable by having a set of internal SLAs that are just a way of saying, these are the commitments I'm making and here's how I'm measuring against it. Guess what that allows us all to do? It allows us to hold each other more accountable and as a team and as an enterprise, be able to deliver better against our commitments. I love how you put that because underlying that is that we trust each other more when our agreements are transparent. Isn't that true? And explicit and measured. Exactly. Well, John, you have shared so many great ideas today on my quest for the best. I just want to thank you so much. Starting off with Mrs. Sauterberg, your math teacher at the Jesuit High School, who encouraged you that you have the confidence to take on um, difficult and complex domains. It's great to be given that kind of confidence early on. Talking to us about your experience with being digital and how it really comes down to being honest over the conversations you have and what you're promising or committing to and being able to get back to day one thinking so that you're always thinking, what are we going to do? How is it going to work? Rather than being complacent and letting it coast. Thanking us, I want to thank you for helping us underscore the value of slowing down so that we think things through at a deeper level and a more accurate level. And emphasizing with some of the stories you told us about taking time to truly understand the customer so that you're doing the hard work of gathering the information and going out in the field and getting those details so that it leads to insights. It's not just an activity. You talked to us about how root causes were really actually discussed at that electronics client, Ron, out in Dallas, because they really needed to understand the customer experience in order to improve and monitor for some of those missed opportunities that were happening. And it led to a different mindset around metrics because it raised awareness once it started showing up on people's boards. And they were able to talk about them in more honest and objective ways rather than feeling defensive about it. You, you really shared some great ideas in the area of building trust and not settling for the easy answer. And knowing that as part of the culture that you create, whether in small, small businesses or large enterprises, that when we challenge each other, it's for the best to come up with the best idea, the best decision, and not to take it personally. And we're in this struggle together to get to the better answer. Just for all these reasons and more, and especially like the SLA part, I'm going to be listening to that again myself. John, I really want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. It's been a treat and a pleasure to have you share with us. Bill, great conversation. You did a great job of both asking the questions and, and your summary there was uh, fantastic. I couldn't have done it any better. And you know, my real passion is just about helping teams and leaders approach their work differently so that they can have different types of results. And so I always kind of say like this book, my work, it's not about Amazon. It's about what you can take from a company like Amazon to help make change happen. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk. John, before we say goodbye, tell us where we could find out more about you and your work online. The simplest way is just go to rossmanpartners.com. That's R-O-S-S-M-A-N partners.com. And you can find Think Like Amazon and Hardback, Kindle, and Audible at Amazon. Thanks again so much, John. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. 
please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.